a British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to the British TV podcast, show number 84. I'm Ryan in Seattle. I'm Chrissy in Seattle and barely indoors. It's gorgeous out and we've been having the wettest coldest, nastiest spring so far, and it's hard not to just rush outside and roll around in the grass when it's so pretty. I think we're going to break a record this year of the latest 70-degree day. I've heard rumors it might be Friday, which would be, what, uh, the 20th? Mm -hmm. I think the record's the 24th. Yeah, it's been bonkers. We've been roughing it here, but uh, you've had it worse on the East Coast. There are a lot of snowstorms and, of course, tornadoes in the South and flooding in California, so I guess we really shouldn't complain, but it's nice that... uh, Spring has finally sprung here. This week's show, we have reviews, news, what's on British TV this week, shows running in the United States, DVD releases, and a feature on Sarah Smart. So, did you go see Bridesmaids? No, I'm going tomorrow. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, it's the romantic comedy, number one, no, number two at the box office, because Thor was number one again. Probably the only time in the history of cinema that Chris O'Dowd will get the girl over John Hamm. Okay. Do you know who John Hamm is? What's any on... I think so. He's a madman. Yeah. I mean, very sexy, good-looking guy, mm-hmm. although he loves to uh, mock his own image, and he plays a real heel in Bridesmaids. And over Saturday Night Live over the weekend, they did a live-action... I saw that. ...the ambiguously okay. gay mm-hmm. duo with him and Jimmy Fallon. I saw <laughs> that, and, and Carell and uh, Colbert, yeah. and yeah, I saw that on the Chris O'Dowd was a really nice, romantic, leading guy. Okay. And he plays a cop. And there's one scene, and you'll see it where they're sitting on the hood of the car, and he's almost like trying to attempt an American accent. And you're thinking, is he supposed to be American? Is he supposed to be Irish? And then literally she says in the middle of the scene, I didn't think foreigners could become policemen. And he makes some sort of joke about it. So they actually like point out to the audience that he's not an American, clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very strange. Well, to me, most people, I'm sort of my age and younger, who are Irish, their their accents are the least accenty to my ears, as opposed to Scottish or Welsh or English. It seems like they can almost be it's the the Irish accent is the closest to an American accent to me. Yes, when so. I lived in London, I knew an Irish lady. And being an Irish woman in London in the nineties, she got the stink eye a lot. And I said, You don't sound foreign to me because I could hear an Irish accent in America and mm-hmm. I wouldn't think about it. And she thought that was very peculiar. <laughs> well, I am looking forward to it. It didn't and, get happen over the weekend, but we'll do it tomorrow. And Matt Lucas has a very tiny part. Oh, I, it could have been anybody. I could have played that part. But, you know, it's like, oh, there's Matt Lucas. Mm-hmm. And I didn't recognize the actress that was in, with him. She was kind of a larger blonde woman. You might. She plays, plays a sister, and I didn't recognize her name. Or Wasn't him in drag? No, 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 no. Okay. You, you'll see that clearly that's... All right. And next week, we're going to talk a bit about Chris O'Dowd's project. So he's kind of uh, getting yeah, all over branching it. out. Yes. So, Doctor Who, The Doctor's Wife. What did you think of that? It's all right. Only all right? Yeah, I liked Elizabeth Barrington. She was the one you thought was too old for Chris O'Dowd in The Crimson Petal and The White Yep. She was playing Auntie. I liked her a lot. I liked Auntie and Uncle. Oh, yeah. She's been in tons of stuff. Yep. Uh, she was in Psycho. Psycho, first year. season of Psychoville, she was a regular in Waterloo Road. She's mm-hmm. one of the teachers. She plays Ruby, moving wallpaper. Yeah, she's one of those, like, as Kelly likes to say, 12 actors that just is in everything. Yes. 
the guy who played Uncle, I looked at his credits, and he's kind of, you know, he played a judge in some show and something and something else, but he's never written anything really big. Yeah. That, uh, that happens sometimes. You get somebody who's, you think, boy, why haven't they been in more? They're kind of fun, but maybe he'll move on. Well, they probably do. Because he's not a young work. person, but, you know, he's, maybe he just uh, is like Andy Millman in Extras, you know, he, he fulfilled his responsibilities as an adult, and so now he's getting into acting in a later age. No, I enjoyed The Doctor's Wife a lot. Mm-hmm. I like The Confidential because Neil Gaiman was reading his script in Great Hunks and he was a good reader out louder. So, Oh, yes. I've seen Neil Gaiman at readings. Uh, he's mm-hmm. quite the cult celebrity figure. My wife's a huge fan of his books. He was here at a convention oh, about eight years ago and I got a chance to talk to him because I was wearing my Father Ted shirt and he walked up to me and goes, oh, Father Ted. Well, hey. So we had a nice little chat there. Yeah, he's been all over the media. Been on Twitter. People have been tweeting him about the thing, and he's been kind of doing little 140-character uh, ball malls about it. He, there was two videos they put on the BBC website with him talking about scenes that he'd cut out of the script and what those scenes would have been like. And then on Monday, he was on The Guardian Online answering questions from fans oh. about the episode. Well, he's a big fan, so there you go. Yes, he is. It was very much... The kind of episode that a fan would sort of come up with. The kind of thing I would expect to see in the comic strip, actually. It's one of those kind of ideas that you think, wow, what a really cool idea. But mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'd want to see that on TV or not. Although I think they did it brilliantly. It was very different change of pace kind of story there. Uh, it kind of made me in the mind of sort of the way Blink was, which you know everyone thinks it's a classic now. But I remember when it first came out, people were kind of like, well, the Doctor's hardly in it. Mm-hmm. Where's David Tennant this week? And of course, we all acknowledge that it's a great story. And in fact... Most people use Blink now as the entry drug. You want to show somebody, well, here's what Doctor Who's about. You show them Blink. Mm-hmm. In the old days, it was uh, Face of Evil, a little Tom Baker story. I used to get a lot of people hooked on that one. I mean, the first half of the story, I kept thinking about how superfluous Amy and Rory were to the story. When the Doctor locks them in the TARDIS, I thought it was uh, Neil Gaiman's realizing the same thing and literally writing them out of the plot. But of course, it was just a ploy to let us go deeper in the TARDIS. Yeah. Which we got to do all the time in the old days. It used to be much brighter... And white walls with roundels in them and stuff like that. Not this hexagon thing. Yeah, I think it's something that fans of New Who have been waiting for since 2005. Since we've never gone beyond the control room. Except for a wardrobe scene in the Christmas Invasion. Invasion, yep. But that's it. But people, yeah, just sort of disappear up staircases now. And you're like, oh, what are they doing? (laughs) They're going to their bunk bedroom. Yeah, that was was a very good line. It's a bed with a ladder. Can we lose the bunk beds, please? (laughs) I love their little conference before they asked it, too. It was very funny. Yeah, I uh, rewatched it again today to kind of pick up little things that I missed the first time. And and it was really great. I mean, I enjoyed the episode very, very much while I was watching, which is always a good sign that, that, you know, I don't have to analyze it or think about it i'm just thinking hey this is i'm having a really good time watching this episode and it's totally working for me and you know there are people who they didn't like it but you can't please everybody and on twitter i said that my only problem was the title i thought it was a complete lie poor ood though never a break and then kelly and i started having this back and forth on twitter and she says it wasn't a lie moffat said in the confidentials and interviews that the doctor is married to the tardis and then I said, well, I guess Moffat and I have a different definition of marriage then. And that is my only gripe about the story, though. And she got the last word in saying, of course, it's not literal. She is who he's going to spend the rest of his life with. Can't yeah. think of a better metaphor. They called her the love of his life that he'll never leave. <laughs> Except maybe when he's 1100 years old. 
Because where where was his TARDIS in the beginning scenes? What had he done with the TARDIS, the Impossible Astronaut? Let's talk about that a little bit. Our our pal Darren Brown, of course, you know, being a classic stage magician, Mm -hmm. knows about the power of misdirection. How do we know that's the doctor at the beginning of the story wearing the Stetson? He tells us he's the doctor. He looks like Matt Smith. And Canton says it's the doctor, yeah. Where's his TARDIS? Yep. There should be a TARDIS, and a second I'm TARDIS thinking, Has he there. divided into two, and only one can go on? If you're going to do that sort of magic trick to the audience, that's the first thing you do, is you sit there and say, hey, look at this over here. And then, boom, something happens to it. And you're thinking, wow, how did he make that elephant disappear? Well, there never was an elephant there, or whatever. Um, other than that, or it's my favorite time travel novel of all time, The Anubis Gates by Tim Powers. And it has a present day guy who ends up getting stuck in the past and he ends up assuming the role of a famous poet well famous in the book it's a fictional person but and he knows that on a certain day that he's going to die in a duel like when he's 50 or something like that so he has all these adventures and then comes the day when he knows it's dueling day and but it turns out there's a loophole because of things that have happened in the book and uh I'm thinking if you read the Anubis Gates and, and we'll see what happens in episode 13 if I'm right or not. But that's that's my theory. We shall see. Yeah. Yes. Other thoughts about the doctor's wife? Yes, yeah, Saren Jones uh, kind of doing her best uh, Hell No Bottom Carter look there. Mm-hmm. I think it's the, uh, the makeup of the eyes and the big hair and the petticoats. She was the uh, Mona Lisa in that Sarah Jane Adventures. I hadn't seen that one. Oh, I, where she's kind of channeling Catherine Tate. She played it with a Lancashire accent. Oh, all right. It's very strange. <laughs> but she was also in Single Father with David Tennant, and he's been a regular on Coronation Street. And everyone thought she was fabulous in Doctor Who. I'd have to agree. She, she was very, very good in that. And it was almost a throwaway when we got her character name. I think they said Idris at the very, very beginning, but then the house called her that just before she died at the very end. Idris the TARDIS. Yeah. Yes. I thought it was one of the best desolated planet services I've ever seen realized and a great combination of smoke and actual props and then cgi for the the wide shots mm-hmm. but it never looked like a special effect or uh fake or anything like that i, I mean, it reminded me actually of the first alien when they find the giant spaceship and that was kind of done with a combination of miniatures and uh, mats and things like that and uh, all those were tardises too I mean, yeah if you, don't, you have to think about that through the course of the story that because you thought oh there's just a lot of crash spaceships but they were all tardises in disguise tardis eye <laughs> no, it's TARDISes. That's yes, the plural. Because, okay. Because it is an acronym. Uh, and Neil Gaiman explained that there was going to be this scene where they were going to turn the chameleon circuits off on all of them, and you would see this graveyard of TARDISes, and they just one of those things that they didn't put in there. Mm-hmm. But that would have shown the audience, oh, look, they are. But uh, yeah, that looked really great. And I like the nice, uh, creepy green lighting in the TARDIS when House was in control. Green, of course, is the science fiction code color for evil. Mm-hmm. The X-Files used to use that quite a bit as well. Yep, shame we didn't get to see Michael Sheen, though, but he was having a good old time with his microphone somewhere. Yes, and he, he was a good voiceover there. That was mm-hmm. uh, very nice. So it was cool to get uh, big-time celebrities to uh, do parts on that. I heard someone podcaster joke, it would have been hilarious to have Hugh Laurie playing House. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> that would have been very, yeah. Anyway, I don't think we needed that. And you know what? It, now that I think back of the pirate episode, I'm kind of glad they didn't have like four dark, bleak episodes in a row. Mm-hmm. It was kind of nice to sort of have that palate cleanser last week where nobody dies and kind of a light adventure because this one was pretty darn dark. 
and I and next week's trailer looks pretty dark too. Yeah. So. In the great scheme of things, this whole season may make a whole lot of uh, sense as far as style-wise. And then there's business nightmares. Yeah, that's something I discovered this week. I was a business major in college. I love all that talk about branding and image. And it's when things have gone very wrong for big companies, largely British, but not just. They did the whole new Coke debacle, too. But what it's a really fast-moving show, and they have a lot of examples of different things that went gone wrong for different reasons. Purcell Soap, when they didn't research and develop a new formulation enough and they released it and it was shredding people's clothing and how that made could be lose. a slight design flaw. Yeah. They, they lost their uh, industry leader place there. They were trying to uh, compete with Ariel because Purcell was just, Oh, mums, if you love your family, use this, take care of them with Purcell and Ariel was, well, we base it on science and this is why it gets your clothes cleaner. So Purcell was trying to oomph up the science there. Got taken off all the shelves at Sainsbury's and all the big stores, and they lost millions in revenue for the sales, but an awful lot more in the R and D that they hadn't that they'd put into it and the marketing, and so that was crazy. They had things like Rabbit. Did you ever hear of? No, what's that? It was based on a very successful Hong Kong um, program in Hong Kong. It was in the early days of cellular, when cellular phones were just incredibly expensive. Rabbit was supposed to be your low cost option. You used it as a cordless phone in your house but you could take the receiver with you and you'd look for a hot spot that would have the little rabbit in the street and you could make calls on the street and it was you know 20 percent of what cell phone but it just was too little too late and cell phone usage just overtook it and so even though they had a wide launch and they had thousands of these hot spots put in they, they only got nine thousand people signing up for it it was the fellow who had had tried to launch the company in the UK because it had been pretty popular in its day in Hong Kong earlier in the whole technology cycle. He was he then founded Orange Cellular, which he sold for billions of dollars. So he did pretty well. So you have these stories where sometimes the recovery, they did recover and how and what they had to do. And other times they just became a niche like Polaroid film with the advent of digital cameras, how it just they lost so much money and had to fire file for chapter 11. And now they're just sort of still around, but it's really just, for, do they still exist. They do, but in a very limited way, they hired Lady Gaga to be their artistic director and try to think of new projects and like sunglasses that can take Polaroids and, you know, interesting things like that. Well, they still won the patent for polarization though, right? For Polaroid sunglasses. Not sure. Don't they? I don't know. But so that was one of them. And my, and my favorite of all was the story of the mini because the Mini Cooper. Well, they were the Minis before they were the Mini Cooper. Ah. The Mini Cooper was their deluxe version because oh. the the Mini British Motor Company wanted to sell a car for five hundred pounds, and that was their directive. Now, in what year? Well, they had the Beatles in them and Peter Sellers in them during their launch. So early sixties, so early sixties. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So five hundred pounds was yeah. yeah still real money in those days. Right. Well, the cheapest cars there were these little German bubble cars with the three wheels that. BMW was making that had the door that opened in the front. It had two wheels in the front, one in the back, and they're they're really cheap. Right. So they came up with the Mini, which Sir Dyson of the vacuum cleaners, he, it said it was an absolutely wonderful piece of engineering. And they could have sold it for more, but they wanted to sell it for 500 pounds, and they didn't make any money on it. They were selling it at about what they were. it was costing them to manufacture. The, they weren't checking the numbers. It was just... And eventually they came up with deluxe 
the Mini Cooper, which had, you know, things like a heater and seat belts and they could cuss. The early adopters of the Mini, they got quite a deal. <laughs> they were they were getting something basically at cost or even a little less than cost in some cases. Well, they sell iPhones. I mean, they figure they're going to make money on the contract of the phones, but they're underwriting the cost of the phones. Well, that's what they did with Polaroid cameras. Right. I mean, the early ones were outrageously expensive, but then they dropped them down because and it sold them as cheap as they could because they were going to hook you on the film. No, the old joke about uh, Gillette, yeah. you know, sell, uh, make the razors cheap and the blades expensive. Well, Lord Dyson said he, he's very, he would never invest in a company that makes an expendable because consumers don't like them. And there's always going to be trying to get rid of this, like the film or maybe the computer and have a, all your storage on a bigger computer somewhere, you know, things like that. You should always look ahead towards mm. reducing things like that, how they're saying people aren't going to have DVD collections anymore because they'll be able to just pull them up on their computers when they want. Well, the sales still look that yeah. way. They're like in half what they used to be. And so it's a great program. And I haven't watched yesterday's yet, but it's about marketing errors. I know that when Coca-Cola, well, they, they did the whole new Coke oh, yes. debacle too, which I always wondered, you know, tongue in cheek, if they all meant to really bring back Coke Classic. But I don't think they did now, having just watched the whole launch, the press conference where they announced it. People went hostile. All the all the reporters were asking the meanest questions, and they realized that they had done the their little Coke taste tests and found people liked the new formula better, but they didn't have that whole love of Coke and Coca Cola's America. And and the other thing that's great about this show, The Business Nightmares, is it has great vintage clips and commercials. So uh, you'll have to watch it when there, there'll be three episodes. Uh, hosted by Evan Davis, who I wasn't familiar with, but he's been blogging about it and saying he hopes he gets another series commissioned because he's got more stories to tell. But it is a storytelling documentary series as opposed to, let's say, Kitchen Nightmares, where they actually do interventions. No, it's Looking Back looking documentary. Back. Okay. But they interview people who are in charge of research and development. They, they interviewed the personal spokesperson at the time. Mm. And he just clung to, oh, no, it's better, it's better, as long as he could before he was absolutely proved wrong that it was ruining clothes and he had to get out there and, and apologize. And so they interviewed him 20 years on past it. So it was pretty impressive that a lot of the people who were affected by these dilemmas were willing to talk about it. And It's like when they used to do shows about bad television and they would actually get the producers and actors to confess to all these horrible programs that they had put on the air, whereas yeah. in America, no one will ever touch a unsuccessful TV show or laugh about it now, but in Britain, that's sort of expected of you. Well, I'm really looking forward to watching the other two. I, I loved it. It was a great, great piece of, uh, great hour documentary. All right. That was Business Nightmares. Mm -hmm. Well, this week on Twitter, I wasn't sure at first, but as the romantic plots heated up, I'm very glad I stuck with the series of Campus. Mm-hmm. I, I, and it ended with a big musical number a la Glee. Oh. They sang... I believe it's meant to be done. I watch you when you are sleeping. You belong to me. Do you feel the same? Am I only dreaming? Or is this burning an eternal I remember they, it was featured once on an episode of Pushing Daisies. Kristen Chenoweth sung it. And then uh, 
holy crap, John Landis had a cameo in Psychoville playing a director, of course. And mm -hmm. I can't say I ever expected to see that. Because I was looking at it, I was like, is that John Landis? He opened his mouth and he's got an American accent. And sure enough, in the credits, there he was. It was just a tiny little bit part. Hmm. <laughs> he probably was filming Burke and Hare over there. Must have been, yep. Yeah. And then thank you, BBC and producer Lucy Kenwright, for using the right aspect ratio on the classic clips on the John Sullivan tribute that went out. You know, it's been my pet peeve where they blow up the clips to 16.9 and they crop off the top and bottom and they're all grainy and they look terrible. Mm -hmm. But on this one, they were showing obviously lots of Holy Fools and Horses, but other programs that he'd worked on and they put black bars on the sides and showed them the correct square aspect ratio. Whew. Good. So you can follow us on Twitter at Brit TV Podcast. Well, the news this week, NBC announced this week that two of its fall... TV series would be remakes of British TV shows. The first is Prime Suspect with Maria Bello in the part that Helen Mirren made famous. I can't imagine anyone who's a fan of the original would be interested in the remake. But in the case of Free Agents, NBC's new comedy based on a Channel 4 series that virtually nobody remembers, expectations are higher, especially because they've retained the best thing about the original, Anthony Stewart Head, as the head of a public relations company. Hank Azaria from The Simpsons will be starring in the NBC version alongside Head. And now here's some trivia for you. The original Free Agents in 2009 starred Stephen Mangan, who is now appearing in episodes about a U.S. remake of a British sitcom. Pretty weird, huh? Yeah. And Matt Smith and Benedict Cumberbatch share the cover this week on the Radio Times to promote the BAFTA Awards. There's two different covers, and one Benedict is sort of prominent and Matt's in the background, and the other one, Matt's in the foreground and Benedict's in the background. So you can vote for your favorites. Uh. Of course, just watch Jim Broadbent come and win the award anyway. <laughs> in the Eurovision Song Contest held last Saturday, Azerbaijan was voted the winner in a broadcast from Germany that was watched by an estimated audience of 120 million people across Europe. In Britain, over 12 million people were watching it on the BBC, hosted by Graham Norton. England, represented by Blue, came in 11th, beaten by the Irish entry that was sung by Jedward, which was 8th. And Channel 4 has announced the commissioning of a new comedy drama series from journalist and broadcaster Charlie Brooker. He previously penned the zombie drama Dead Set for the channel. Black Mirror, which Channel 4 has described as, quote, a hybrid of the Twilight Zone and Tales of the Unexpected, will consist of three separate hour-long what-if stories satirizing modern life. And we did a feature on Charlie Brooker back in show 29. And ITV canceled the long-running Scottish detective drama Taggart last week after running 27 years, including the last 17 without the title <laughs> character. Because the actor died. Uh, it was a victim of low ratings, but nevertheless, Scottish broadcaster STV hopes to keep the series running possibly as an international co-production. Apparently, it's very popular in Australia. That's one of those shows that you want to watch with the subtitles on. <laughs> the accents are very thick. What's on TV for the week of May 18th to the 24th? Wednesday, Waterloo Road continues on BBC One. And it's followed by Life of Riley. The British Soap Awards 2011 will be shown on ITV One. Fans of Coronation Street and EastEnders begin your rivalries. Stuart Lee's Comedy Vehicle continues on BBC Two. Thursday, the Shadowline continues on BBC Two. 
Here's a little-known fact. The writer-director of The Shadow Line, Hugo Blick, played the young Joker in the flashback scene in 1989's Batman. Presumably he was picked because he looked like a young Jack Nicholson. <laughs> There's been quite a controversy about Shadow Line. I saw a, a long interview with Hugo Blick uh, in The Guardian, and they had the comments there, and Rafe Spall is the real bone of contention. Some people saying, oh, it's a brilliant performance. He's playing this crazy guy. Other people going, I just don't buy him at all. Hmm. Uh, but everyone agrees that Eccleston's great. I'm saying stick with it. I think The Shadow Lion's going to go down as one of the most memorable traumas of the year. But because it's so different and big, it is hard to just sort of jump into and get instant gratification from. And that's what a lot of people are kind of resisting. But I think that viewers will be rewarded if they stick with it. I mean, right now, that's sort of the highlight of my week until okay. Doctor Who comes on on Saturdays because it's really slim pickings right now. Al Murray's Compete for the Meat debuts on Dave with a game show where contestants from around the country face general knowledge questions in a bid to win a frozen chicken. Uh-huh. And Psychoville continues on BBC Two. Celebrity Juice is on ITV Two. Friday Baboons with Bill Bailey continues on ITV One. Have I Got News For You is on BBC One and has guest host Alan Johnson, MP, and panelists Miles Jupp and Graham Lynham. Paulo Grady Live continues on ITV. The Graham Norton Show is on BBC One with guests Snoop Dogg, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Elle McPherson. Saturday, Doctor Who begins a two-part adventure, The Rebel Flesh, written by Life on Mars co-writer Matthew Graham. We'll have a feature on guest star Sarah Smart in a few minutes. Doctor Who Confidential is on BBC Three. Sunday, Richard Hammond's Engineering Connections is on BBC Two. The British Academy Television Awards, a.k.a. the BAFTAs, will be given out live on BBC One, hosted by Graham Norton. Matt Smith is the first person to be nominated for playing Doctor Who, but he's up against Benedict Cumberbatch in Sherlock. Will Misfits upset Downton Abbey? Tune in. Vera continues on ITV One. Monday, The Dales continues on ITV One. Tuesday, Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps finishes on BBC Three. If they don't replace it with something good, then Tuesday will be another vast wasteland. In the United States on BBC America, Wednesday, reruns of The Tudors. Friday, reruns of Law & Order UK. Saturday, Doctor Who has The Rebel Flesh, followed by The Graham Norton Show. Monday, repeats of Top Gear and James May's Road Trip. On Showtime, Secret Diary of a Call Girl continues on Thursday. Sunday, on most PBS stations, Masterpiece Mystery has David Suchet as Hercule Poirot in Murder on the Orient Express. The star-studded adaptation includes Barbara Hershey, David Morrissey, and Hugh Bonneville as suspects. It's a repeat, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, it was shown over Christmas on ITV, but you've said that they've jumped and shown several things over here before they got shown over there, so... Yeah, they... they But it's really good. I liked it, so I would recommend seeing that if you're into those. DVD releases. The Feathered Serpent, a 1976 children's drama series about Aztecs, starred Patrick Troughton as the villain. South Riding, the recently shown BBC drama adapted by Andrew Davis with Anna Maxwell-Martin as the strong-willed headmistress of a girls' school in 1930s Yorkshire, who butts heads with David Morrissey. Yeah, I have to say, the ending took me completely by surprise. The fate of a few characters is not what I expected at all. There were a lot of familiar faces in South Riding, including Douglas Henshaw, Peter Firth, and Penelope Wilton. 
And finally on DVD, Circles of Deceit. Dennis Waterman stars in four feature-length episodes as a former Special Forces operative battling baddies as well as his own sneaky employers in this 1993 ITV series. So our feature this week is on Sarah Smart. With the possible exception of Harry Enfield, Sarah Smart is probably the most obscure person we've ever profiled on the podcast. Nevertheless, she is guest starring in Doctor Who over the next two weeks, and I've always been a big fan of hers, so here is Sarah Smart. Sarah Smart was born in 1977 and began acting on TV in 1989 at the age of 12. Her first big claim to fame was on Woof! with an exclamation point an ITV children's fantasy series about a ginger boy named Eric who could turn into a dog. It was rather charming. The dog was very cute and had an amazing repertoire of tricks it could do on camera. There was four of them over the course of the series. The first one was a daughter of Benji. In the third season of Woof, Sarah joined the cast as Eric's tomboy best friend, Rachel Hobbs. And filming was interrupted for a while when she broke her leg. A number of famous guest stars appeared during the run of Wolf, including Leslie Grantham, Stephen Fry, and Anthony Stewart Head as someone else who could also transform into a dog. In 1997, Sarah Smart appeared in Bliss. It starred Simon Shepard as Dr. Sam Bliss, who discovers a medical conspiracy concerning possible research into a longevity drug. Sarah played Bliss's daughter, Zoe, and in this episode, she witnesses a murder and is interviewed by the police. Let's go back to the beginning. You got to the station at about, what, 11.10? A few minutes before the train arrived, yes? Yeah. Was there anyone else on the platform? No, just me. Okay. Train came in, right? It slowed down. And then what happened? I opened the door. And it was awful. There was blood everywhere. And this woman was lying there. And I didn't know what to do. Look, is this really necessary? I'm sorry, sir, but we've got to catch this guy before he does it again. Where exactly was the carriage? Near the front of the train or the back? Um, <clears throat> closer to the back. It stopped opposite the clock. The door was at one end, and no one got off. And I opened the door, and there was this woman, about 30. Um, she had blood all over her, her jeans, T-shirt, everywhere. And she had tape over her mouth. And she kept looking up at me, just staring. I kept looking at her earrings. She had long silver earrings. Some very good acting there from Sarah Smart when she was still only 20 years old. That same year, she made appearances in A Touch of Frost with David Jason and The Locksmith with Warren Clark. She was in the final season of Soldier Soldier in 1997. We talked about that series in our feature on Robson Green in show 78. And she played Lucy Fitzpatrick. After appearing in adaptations of David Copperfield and Wuthering Heights in 2000, Sarah Smart began co-starring in At Home with the Braithwaites. 
This would be her first of three collaborations with writer Sally Rainwright. Amanda Redman played a mother of three daughters who wins the lottery but doesn't tell her family, including her philandering husband, played by Peter Davison. Sarah was oldest daughter Virginia, who is a lesbian and begins to have fantasies about Megan, the sexy next-door neighbor played by Julie Graham. And we did a feature on Julie in show 16. Here, Virginia discusses her problems with a friendly window washer. Hello. Who are you? Uh, Rick. Are you a burglar? <laughs> no. no. Everything all right? Only uh, you're looking a bit thoughtful. Want to talk about it? About what? Well, I don't know. Life's bollocks. Why? I even fall in love with the right people. Who are the right people? People who look at me twice. Why wouldn't anyone look at you twice? You're lovely. No, I'm not. Am I? Who is he anyway? No, that's no one. <clears throat> he must be blind not to know it's you. It isn't that simple. What? Is he married? Yeah. Well, doesn't mean he's happy. Well, as it happens, this person has indicated that they're very bored with their marriage. Well, then. The thing is, this person doesn't know that I feel like that about them. Well, no-one's going to tell him if you don't. No. I mean, the thing is... It's, it's a gamble. If he tells you he's not interested, you know, you'll feel worse. But what if he doesn't? What if he's been waiting for someone like you to come along? What if it's you he's been waiting for? I had wanted to use a clip with Megan and Virginia, but in nearly all their scenes together, Megan, as the self-centered actress, would do all the talking with Virginia just staring at her fixated by her beauty. It also must have been confusing for the production team in that two of the sisters were played by actresses both named Sarah, with Sarah Cherm playing a character also named Sarah, and then Sarah Smart as Virginia. You can just imagine the director saying, okay, in this scene, Sarah will be standing over there to a frequent chorus of, which Sarah? And I'm so used to seeing Amanda Redman as a blonde nowadays in New Tricks that it's a bit strange to see her as a brunette again in At Home with the Braithwaites. The series ran for four years on ITV, with the family variously riding high or being brought low by the lottery winnings. I enjoyed it, and it was great to watch Peter Davison melt down a few times a season. He's always very good for that. In 2002, writer Sally Wainwright used Sarah Smart to good effect in the BBC miniseries Spark House. Set in rural Yorkshire, it was about a boy and a girl from different backgrounds who are madly in love, and yet events conspire to keep them apart. Where were you last night, when the storm started? Oh, uh, I went out with Connor and that lot. My dad said he saw you up at Fleece. Said you had your arm round the lass. Did he? <clears throat> to be strictly accurate, she had her arm round me. Who? Tessa Gillespie. She fancies me. She's been after me for 
weeks. She's pretty. Do you fancy her? Last night, she she asked me to shag her. She was very drunk. Were you... What? Tempted. I'd like to know what it's like. Do you know what I wished for last night? <sighs> You're not supposed to tell me. I wish. I'm not listening. I wished for it. I wished for it to happen. And for it to be everything you want it to be. Brilliant. Beautiful. So did I. And it will happen one day. And when it does, it'll be right. The links people will go to to survive or reclaim a lost love were tragically revealed as Smart defiantly held her own in Spark House. In 2005, Sarah Smart appeared in BBC Three's Funland. Remember Blackpool? Funland was as if David Lynch did a remake, but without the musical numbers. Dark, weird, and creepy didn't begin to describe the characters and situations that revolved around a nightclub run by a powerful old woman with secrets. Among the many subplots, Sarah and Chris Marshall played Lola and Dudley Sutton, newlyweds who end up at a seedy hotel where Lola is forced to become a stripper to pay their debts. Come back to bed. No, I've got to be at the club by 11. Mm. Dudley. Please. Mom, I'll show you a good time. Like yesterday. Well, yesterday was a one-off. I was excited. We just have to slow down. I'll count back from a thousand. I've got to do my teeth. Oh, right. Uh, not in there. I went earlier. There's a problem with the flush. I'll go upstairs. Lola initially is a mousy character, but the more she performs, the more assertive she becomes, even in the bedroom. She begins to want to have people watching her, which is convenient with the hotel manager being a peeping Tom. And I'd forgotten that Daniel Mays from Ash to Ashes and Outcast had a major part in Funland, a seriously demented series that I couldn't take my eyes off. The following year, Sarah Smart reteamed with writer Sally Wainwright as the title character in Jane Hall. In this ITV comedy drama series, Jane was a Middle England girl who becomes a London bus driver. Her posh boyfriend, Richard, doesn't really seem to understand her. Sorry, I apologize, but what do you expect? I mean, what the bloody hell do you expect? Hello, I am speaking to you. Shut up, Jane. Excuse me. Look, how many times do I have to apologize? I mean, what do you want me to say? So, well, why hadn't you told them I'm a bush driver then? I don't know. It never arose. Now, how come that smarmy git thought you were still going out with Tanya? I don't know. I don't talk about things like that. Not at work. Not with him. Oh, where's Tanya? I was expecting Tanya and her enormous knockers. For God's sake, Jane. Jane also had odd flatmates, including Robert, played by Stephen Mangan, and manages to get into situations that only seem to happen on television. Like, for instance, one episode, her bus is hijacked by female escaped convicts. That's the episode I saw. Yeah. Right. The series ended w- with an incredible cliffhanger with Jane secretly marrying Robert and then going ahead with her own wedding to Richard. Although produced in 2005, Jane Hall was originally going to be called Jane Hall's Big Bad Bus Ride, but that had to be changed after the London bus terrorist attack in July of 2005. 
And the series sat on the shelf for another year when it was announced the show wouldn't be coming back for a second season to resolve things. So we sort of left her at the altar <laughs> as a bigamist. <laughs> Sarah Smart has had a recurring role in Casualty 1900s, a historical version of the long-running hospital drama, but set 100 years ago. And they would use real-life cases and show what would happen in the early medical era. Since 2008, she has co-starred as Anne Britt Hogland in the BBC remake of Wallander, along with Kenneth Branagh. And she's also made appearances in Agatha Christie's Marple, Poirot, Midsummer Murders, and earlier this year as a patient in Monroe with James Nesbitt. Number one, let's forget all this talk about tumors. Tumor is Latin for lump, okay? The other thing you should know is I am 99% certain that it is not cancerous. Okay, that's good, isn't it? The reason you've been unwell is that the tumor is in your temporal lobe just here. It's been causing pressure on your brain. And will it happen again? It will. And worse, it will grow. If we do nothing and let it grow, it will kill you. Can't say how soon, but it won't be any longer than five years. It doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like I've got chima. That sounds stupid, doesn't it? It doesn't sound stupid. And can you take it out? I can. I'm very good at that. But there are some risks to surgery. What kind of risks? That's unlikely, but you could lose your memory. You could suffer paralysis down one side. So it wouldn't be me anymore, then, would it? I'm sorry. I have to tell you the bad stuff that might happen. But at the end of the day, it's my choice. It is. But to be honest with you, it's not really a choice at all, is it? One thing I find interesting about Sarah Smart is the great looks of shock and disbelief she's able to convey with her face. Her eyes open wide and her mouth curls just right. When I think of the sort of acting that one would need to be in Doctor Who story, especially a monsterific episode like the Rebel Flesh this week, I have to think those skills would come in especially handy. She'll be playing Jennifer Lucas in the two-part story. Marshall Lancaster from Life on Mars will also be appearing, as well as Matt Smith's former co-star from Party Animals, Raquel Cassidy. Now, one thing Sarah Smart probably won't be doing in Doctor Who is smoking. But wow, did she light up a lot during some of her shows. In At Home with the Braithwaites and Sparkhouse, she was nearly always puffing away with a cigarette in her mouth. But no one smokes in Doctor Who. It's a children's program. So that's Sarah Smart. Uh, hopefully she won't come to a uh, bad end in Doctor Who, but you never can tell with these things. So next week, The Crimson Petal and the White. Chrissy, Kelly, and I have watched this four-part BBC drama about an ambitious prostitute in 19th century London, starring Romola Garay and Chris O'Dowd, and we're going to discuss what we thought about it. Well, I bought the book. It just arrived today. Ah. I bought a... Uh... Hardback copy through Amazon for about $3, so... It's a thick book, though, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's 800 and something pages. I doubt I'll be done by next week. 
Meanwhile, we'd like you to go to our website, www.britishtvpodcast.com, and there you can find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week, and an archive of our previous 83 shows. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can send it to feedback at britishtvpodcast.com, and we'd love to hear from you. And you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash brittvpodcast. Yeah, a lot of uh, series ending uh, this week. Uh, the Office will be on Thursday, and good to see cameos with Catherine Tate and Ricky mm-hmm. Gervais. Uh, other than that, I think cable TV is the only thing that's really given new stuff on there. I watch Game of Thrones and uh, The Killing and uh, South Park. Well, I've always got stacks of things to catch up on, so I'll be watching TV forever, but that's all right. I'm actually sometimes getting a little bored and huh? like, oh, what am I going to watch now? Well, they now have HBO On Demand. Available on your computer, so I'm able to go back and uh, watch early episodes of Big Love and uh, Entourage. And I really want to see the John Adams miniseries. I heard it was really, really good. Hmm. So I'll finally check those things out. And we'll see what uh, comes up on British TV here. I'll tell you all about it. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.